Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll go to the Murakami Museum and Japanese Gardens in Delray Beach. The Japanese heritage of Palm Beach County is something that really is little known, uh, little understood. It's a surprise uh, for our visitors to find that there was once a colony of Japanese living in this area. We'll hear the history of Queenie the water skiing elephant. She and I were together all the time. She was my buddy. And we'll go to Key West to discuss the last slave ships. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Murakami Museum and Japanese Gardens in Delray Beach preserves Japanese history and culture right here in Florida. When Henry Flagler brought his East Coast Railway to Florida in the early 1900s, he encouraged people to establish communities along the route. The Yamato Colony was created by Japanese settlers. That colony no longer exists, but the Murakami Museum and Japanese Gardens do. Tom Gregerson is their cultural director. The Yamato colony was established uh, pretty much as a direct result of uh, interest in bringing um, uh, settlers to Florida uh, by the railroad and its, uh, and, its, uh, and its real estate subsidiary, the, the Model Land Company. The colony was founded by a gentleman whose name was uh, Joe Sakai. Joe Sakai was a Japanese expatriate who had been in the United States uh, for a good 10 years before the colony was settled. Uh, he, um, uh, he was living in the, in the New York area. He was a student at, uh, at uh, New York University. And um, he was uh, graduating uh, from, that, from, their business, uh, from their business school uh, in, uh, in 1903. And um, he came to Florida later that same year with the uh, uh, under the impression that there were the possibility of business opportunities for himself and other Japanese here in the Sunshine State. 
And uh, he came in November of 1903. He sailed from New York to uh, Jacksonville and uh, met with uh, Captain Garner of the Jacksonville Board of Trade and uh, others in the state of Florida, including the governor of the state. And, um, uh, he, and he presented to them, each of them, a, uh, a, a, a plan for establishing one or more Japanese agricultural colonies here in the state of Florida. And this was something that uh, Florida business and political leaders were quite excited to hear about. And they, uh, they, they certainly welcomed him uh, to the state and whisked him on a whirlwind tour of the state to view various sites where the first of these proposed colonies could be established. And uh, on Christmas Day in, in 1903, uh, Joe Sakai came to the Boca Raton area, uh, met with, um, uh, with Captain Rickards, um, the founder of Boca Raton, and uh, an agent for the, for the railroad. And uh, he viewed uh, various sites here in, in our area. Uh, Boca Raton, Delray Beach area for the, uh, the, the for this proposed colony, and uh, settled on on a particular site, and then uh, went to uh, St. Augustine uh, before the end of the year to meet with uh, James Ingraham, uh, the president of the Model Land Company, to sign contracts. Joe Sakai was successful in establishing an agricultural community that experimented with a variety of crops, including pineapples and tomatoes. He returned uh, with a, an initial group of settlers uh, late in 1904, and um, uh, and that but the the property that he had hoped to uh, uh, that he had hoped to move to move to move on to uh, was not yet sufficiently drained for agricultural purposes, so um, they were not able to establish the colony Im immediately. Uh, however. Um, uh, they did uh, farm other property, property belonging to Mr. Rickards, um, and uh, they also uh, uh, began, or Joe Sakai, because of the property that they had originally, he had originally inspected, was still not yet drained enough to, 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 to be used for agriculture. They began looking around for an alternate site, and they settled upon a, an existing a farming operation called the Keystone Plantation where pineapples were being grown between Boca Raton and Delray and uh, through the offices of the Model Land Company they were able to acquire that uh, that uh, that plantation the Keystone Plantation and uh, that form and they established the, the colony on a permanent site in the summer of 1905. The Yamato colony continued for about 40 years, but by the time World War II began, the colony had essentially disbanded. Some Japanese families did stay in the area, however. Tom Gregerson. The colony basically uh, existed for, you know, as a community for a 20-year period from around 1905, when it was established on a permanent site, until the middle of the 1920s, uh, really the years of the Florida land boom, uh, it was a, that was a time when uh, many of the farmers uh, at that time had uh, thought that here was an opportunity for them to sell off their property. Uh, once they had done that, there really was nothing to keep them here in the state of Florida, and uh, uh, they left, uh, left the area, I think most going to other parts of the United States and perhaps some also returning to Japan. Uh, so as a community, uh, Yamato really ceased to exist by the late 1920s. 
Uh, however, it was still a place name. Uh, it was a place name that people knew. Um, it appeared on maps, uh, and Japanese still lived in that area. So um, in, uh, in 1941, when, the, when uh, the World War II began for the United States, um, uh, the U.S. government was looking around for a site on which to build an Army Air Corps training facility and an area to develop uh, radar, I believe, also as well. And they looked at a few places here in South Florida, and one of the, one of the sites they looked at was the Yamato area. And uh, they did, uh, a federal judge, Judge John Holland, uh, did uh, issue orders to uh, uh, seizing or taking the property uh, on behalf of the U.S. government. And U.S. Marshals uh, went into this area, it was geographically defined, uh, it was a large area um, that was uh, a specific area that was, was defined. It wasn't just everybody of Japanese descent in this area, okay, now, you're, now you must leave. Uh, it was a situation where they, uh, they had defined a specific area and they were asking or telling people uh, in that, within, that, within those boundaries to relocate. And some of them were Japanese, there were many others as well uh, in, the, in that area. Uh, but that formed, uh, that action formed the basis of the Boca Raton Airport that exists uh, in that area today. George Murakami came to the Yamato colony in 1906 and ended up being the last original Yamato farmer to stay in the area. He ended up being very successful, and as Tom Gregerson explains, he donated the property that is now the Murakami Museum and Japanese Gardens to Palm Beach County near the end of his life in the mid-1970s. He was able to acquire this property uh, in the closing days of World War II, and uh, some 20 years later, now an elderly man, Mr. Murakami, uh, began to think of his own future, and he wanted to... Uh, he wanted to uh, give his property away to an organization like the city of Delray Beach or Palm Beach County uh, to be used in a manner to benefit the people of his adopted country, the United States. He uh, felt he was uh, afforded uh, many opportunities here and he wanted to thank the people of his adopted country for these opportunities. And he began what, uh, what, turned, out to, what turned out to be a 10-year campaign to give away the property, which today of course seems um, pretty surprising to us. Uh, at the time, however, uh, although today now the park is surrounded by, uh, by, by development, uh, by um, uh, residential uh, neighborhoods, at that time it was, um, it was uh, farmland all around us and, uh, and, the, and this site here was considered to be too far west of centers of population really to be of much use to people. So he, he uh, he tried giving it to the city of Delray Beach, and uh, they uh, didn't act upon it. He turned around and uh, offered it to the county. They also didn't act on it. He returned to Delray Beach the, again, uh, and the second time he approached the county, they did accept the property at that time and began to develop it for a park. It was a 10-year a campaign to give away his property. Today, the Murakami Museum offers rotating exhibitions of Japanese art and artifacts, including textiles, tapestries, no-drama masks, engravings, and prints. The Japanese gardens offer many opportunities for reflection. Tom Gregerson hopes that as people wander the paths in the gardens, that they will reflect upon the history of the unique Japanese colony that was once here. Well, we certainly hope so, yes. Um, uh, you know, the, 
the Japanese heritage of Palm Beach County is something that really is little known, uh, little understood. It's a surprise uh, for our visitors to find that there was once a colony of Japanese living in this area. Of course, uh, Japanese centers of population tend to be clustered more on the west coast of the United States. And here we are on the east coast, uh, but um, uh, it was a, an interesting, um, an interesting uh, uh, experiment, uh, both socially and economically, for the state of Florida uh, to have this colony. Tom Gregerson is cultural director of the Morikami Museum and Japanese Garden. The property was donated to Palm Beach County by George Morikami, the last original farmer of the Yamato colony. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Henry Mancini composed the piece Baby Elephant Walk in 1961. About that same time, Queenie the Elephant began her career in Florida not only walking, but water skiing. Janie Gould has more about the history of Queenie the Water Skiing Elephant. A four-ton Asian elephant named Queenie entertained visitors at Vero's McKee Jungle Gardens in the early 1960s. Queenie belonged to a man who had a rare bird and animal farm in New Hampshire. When he bought Queenie, his daughter, Liz Dane, was eight. The elephant was still a baby. She and I were together all the time. She was my buddy. How did you communicate? I would hug her around the trunk, and she would take her trunk and touch me on the face and on the arms. If I was sad, she would just kind of stand beside me and just, you know, move her head up and down a little bit, touch me with her trunk, as if to say, 
it's okay, it's okay. It's going to be all right. Yeah, it's going to be all right. After a while, trainers started teaching Queenie some circus tricks, and the animal farm was becoming a business. I wanted to work with Queenie, but my father said, no, you're, you're too small, you're not strong enough, no. Well, I kept pestering and kept pestering. So finally, when I was 11, she and I performed for the first time in front of the public. I didn't stop from that point forward. Queenie even learned how to water ski and performed at Delian Springs in Central Florida. My dad had some skis built for Queenie. Especially large skis, I imagine. Yes, they looked more like a pontoon, but they would sink. Did uh, Queenie take to skiing pretty quickly? Oh, she loved it. I would go out on the skis with her. I would stand beside her. I would have to be careful that she wouldn't get too rambunctious because she loved being out in the water. She loved to get water up her trunk and spray it all over the place and rock the skis back and forth. But that was quite a sight. Well, it was. But when she got to rocking too much, I had to get a little bit stern with her and tell her, okay, that's enough. I didn't really want to topple over and go in the water. Dane's father later bought a home in Vero Beach. For a couple of seasons, Queenie performed at McKee. Liz Dane wasn't with her, though. She stayed home to finish high school in New England. She would basically do the same routine that she and I did, except none of what we call the mount. There was no one that was lifted up in her trunk or on her foot when she was up doing a certain performance on the tub. Were you the only one she would do that with? Yes. By 1967, Queenie's days of touring with Dane's father had ended, and the animal was back on the family farm up north. Then she was sold to circus people and eventually ended up at Wild Attractions, a theme park in Valdosta, Georgia. Liz hadn't seen Queenie in 38 years when she decided to try for a reunion in 2005. We weren't sure if she'd remember me or not. Queenie had gotten to the point where she did not trust strangers. So we approached very cautiously. I called her name. She stopped what she was doing, put her ears out. It was like you could see the wheels turning. In that gigantic head. Yes. So I kept talking to her, and I gave her the command to move up. She took a few steps forward, but then hesitated, still with her ears out, still trying to place my voice. Kurt, the head elephant keeper, went over to her and brought her closer to me. And she stopped with still a good distance between us, but I could reach my hand through the fence. You were separated by a fence at that Absolutely, point. Absolutely, yes, a very strong fence. And she had hit other people before, but she definitely showed signs that she recognized me. I continued talking to her. She smelled my hand and my arm. I put my feet in as far as I could. She smelled my feet so she could get more of a sense of who I was. And then she got as close to the fence as she could. She just kind of stood there with her head gently going up and down and she started rumbling, which is equatable to a cat purring. It's a sound of contentment. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Well, I'm coming, I 
1820, the United States declared slave trading on the high seas illegal, but in mid-century, privateers were still trading in captured Africans. A person purchased for $20 on the African coast was worth more than $1,000 to Cuban sugarcane farmers. Bill Dudley reports on Florida's role in ending this dark chapter in American history. Here's a list of all the medicines that were used to treat the Africans. Some scary things in there. Here is a list showing all of the Carpenters. Corey Malcolm is director of archaeology at the Mel Fisher Maritime Museum in Key West. The 140-year-old papers on his desk contain long lines of neatly written script, names and numbers telling of a strange incident that took place here on the eve of the American Civil War. The Key West story begins in 1859, when after decades of half-hearted attempts to intercept American privateer slave ships, President Buchanan moved to step up operations with a blockade of Cuba. The following year, the U.S. Navy brought three captured ships to Key West. Their cargoes totaled more than 1,400 Africans, many under 16 years of age. This was a surprise event for the people of Key West. A small place, population of 3,000. If it's an island now, it was even more of an island then. They really had to rally to find the resources to support these people. But housing was built within three days of the arrival of the first ship. Uh, a hospital was built. Just everybody came together. This was all done under the leadership of United States Marshal Fernando Moreno. Moreno saw that, that everybody was well fed, well taken care of, and really did a heroic job. And he spent his own money to do this, which is a staggering thing because in the end it cost about $25,000 to keep these people going. He was the person in charge of the Africans. It was his problem. Madeline Burnside is director of the Mel Fisher Maritime Heritage Society, a nonprofit educational and research group founded in 1982. All the citizens of Key West gave clothes and pots and pans and food and all that kind of stuff to try to keep these people supported. But this one particular guy was the person who built the housing and built an enclave for them and made sure that they were safe. The people of Key West were a diverse group and tolerant of each other's political sympathies, both for and against issues like Southern secession. This tolerance would be strained when Southern slave traders learned of the presence of so much valuable property waiting to be recaptured. Three of these guys came down and tried to cut a deal with the citizens of Key West to help them storm the enclave where these people were being kept and steal them. And the citizens that they talked to all said, no, we're not going to do that. Throughout a difficult time, the people of the island felt it was their duty to protect the Africans. Moreno wrote to the federal government for help, but his appeals went unanswered. It has the potential to be a tremendous flashpoint, and everyone was very aware that civil war was probably going to break out any minute. And they were all scared of being part of the thing that, that really made it happen. So when these people arrive, there's some haste to get them out of town. An organization called the American Colonization Society intervened. The Africans would be taken on board ships to join some 8,000 former slaves resettled in Liberia, an artificial West African country created by the society under the auspices of the U.S. government. So as quickly as possible, this American Colonization Society was called in 
to take care of the problem. And they moved quickly. Within, I think, 14 weeks, the whole thing was done. And if, if you think about what it would take now, 14 weeks would be still a very tight time frame. But many of the Africans were never to leave the island. Some of them were just beyond help when they arrived here, and 295 people died in Key West. They were buried on what's now Higgs Beach in a long row of shallow sand graves, it says in the documents. With the beginning of war soon after, Key West became a Union outpost. A fort was built on the beach. The 295 African graves were forgotten. Then, two years ago, acting on the advice of an amateur historian, Malcolm began studying old maps to get a rough idea of the burial site. In the summer of 2002, not wanting to disturb the graves by digging, he brought in ground-penetrating radar to pinpoint their exact location. What a thrill. There, there they were. You know, it was, it was really something. I always say that, you know, about all of our archaeological projects. You know, you can sit and read about something in a book all you want, but as soon as you can know it's a physical reality and a part of our lives today, it just changes everything. So far, they've found less than 15 graves. The rest were apparently moved in 1862 during the building of the fort. And we don't know what happened to them. I suspect that these people were reburied in a, a mass grave somewhere inland. Malcolm's findings, along with a wealth of original documents provided by a descendant of Fernando Moreno, led to The Last Slave Ships, an exhibit at the Mel Fisher Maritime Museum. Its opening in December 2002 coincided with burial rituals performed by leaders of African tribal religions. The exhibit also reminds Key Westers of a time in their island's history when people were joined by a desire to do the right thing. I think its significance for Florida is that it's a very well-documented incident. It involves a lot of people and a lot of idealism. And I think that if you are trying to talk to children or adults about standing up for right and wrong, this is a great story, you know, and standing up for maybe something that's not popular, something that you're not even sure that you totally believe in yourself, but you know that it's either the law or somewhere inside you it says, well, it's the right thing to do. And, you know, that happens every day. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. We hope you'll join us again next week, and until then, check out our website at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.